Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. If the Dublin footballers were looking for their motivational quote to stick up on the wall before Sunday's All-Ireland Final, I don't mm-hmm. know if teams still do this, it's been provided to them by Aidan O'Shea, Murph and Ken. Listen okay. to this for an incendiary. From the minute I moved to Dublin, I was thinking, the second I get my degree, I'm out of here. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now, I know what you're going to say, Murph. I've just lifted that quote out of a piece without giving any context around it. No, I think it speaks for itself. <laughs> it, could, it could pretty much be an interview with anybody who's gone to University of Ireland in the last uh, seven years. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, that's uh, what's remarkable about this idea. Though the fact that he's going straight back to Mayo. Oh, yeah. he's. I'm going to go to Dublin. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to get what I want from these... Capital City, city Clowns, yeah. and yeah. then I'm back to a much superior county in Mayo. That's uh, what I'm reading into this quote. Fair yeah. enough. It's not London or Australia or yeah, no. Canada, one of the usual places. Uh, Malachi Clerkin wrote that piece and is going to join us in studio shortly. I won't put <laughs> this nonsense Clerken, to Malachi. Joe hit the floor when he heard this quote yeah. and uh, he joins us later. Along with Mike Finnerty, sports editor of the Mayo News, Murph, they've put out their supplement today. Yeah, just a, uh, well, yeah, a 64 pages, you know. <laughs> kind of starting to think maybe these guys are starting to slack off a bit, you know. Mayo getting to the All Ireland final is, you know, derogare now, you know. It just seems rather strange. To You're me impressed that by that, Ken? Just a bare sixty-four, 64 pages. pages sounds like a lot. Well, when you factor in twenty percent as ads, you know, what are you? You're down to nearly fifty pages. Yeah. You know, it very quickly starts to starts to dwindle. Really, when I you guarantee you there are some really there are down. some Mayo football fans who will open their Mayo news today and be hugely disappointed that there are only sixty. Two pages the smart money was 64. on 128, but listen, if it's 64, then we'll just have to go with yeah. 64. Shake the paper. Is there a magazine in here somewhere? Yeah. Big Mac go, supplement? Go back up to the counter and go, listen, I only got half the <laughs> All-Ireland Final Supplement. Uh, is there a second part? We're going to be talking uh, about a new biography of George Best again with Duncan Hamilton. Yes, uh, Immortal it's called. And Duncan Hamilton, obviously a two-time winner of the William Hill Sportsbook of the Year prize. Um, one of them was for a book on Brian Clough, which I read. I can't remember what it's like. Provided you don't kiss me. Yeah. Oh, the no. other book. Sorry. Yeah, I don't know. I can't remember what it was for. I don't think I read it, but I. But the Brian Clough book was certainly very, very good, and uh, the and the George Best book is 
to, I mean, you might wonder what is it about a George Best that requires another book? Yeah. And I suppose the reason I think is that none of the other ones have really been that good. Right. And when you've got a player of that, well, I mean, more than just a football player, um, a kind of a cultural icon, own, if I can use that incredibly irritating word, um, then maybe he uh, he deserves something like this to do him uh, justice. And if you like stories where the sports person goes back to the scene of their biggest disappointment and banishes the memory by achieving their greatest success, yeah, you like those yeah, kind yeah, of stories? Okay. Yeah. We're going to be talking to Aileen Reid, Irish triathlete who had a miserable Olympics in London. She's one of the best triathletes in the world, it's fair to say, but had a terrible time at the Olympic Games. Back there at the weekend, finished second in the final part of the World Triathlon Series, which is enough to finish the series in the top 10 in the world, which is a staggering achievement, which we'll talk to her about a little bit later on. Our TV show, second instalment of Second Captains Live, is tomorrow night, Wednesday night, at 11 o'clock. Brilliant lineup for that. Murph, who have we got? Yeah, on our uh, big interview is going to be with uh, Kieran McGinney, and we also have a panel of, uh, well, three voices pretty familiar to listeners to this show, uh, Shane Horgan, Anthony Mulls, Ushin McConville, talking about the All-Ireland Football Final, but also really basically talking about how to prepare for the biggest moment of your entire sporting career. How do you get motivated for it? How do you not get overly motivated for it? Some themes like that. That should be a good chat, and I'm really looking forward to talking to Kieran McGinney on the show. He should be a really good guest. That's coming up tomorrow night at 11 o'clock on RTE 2. I'm going to put a cliche to you now, Murph, to kick things off here. Semi-finals in sport mm. are for the winning. Doesn't Nothing else, you don't learn anything from them. You forget about them as soon as they're played. You just get into the final. That doesn't seem to be entirely accurate in the case of the All-Ireland Football Semi-Finals this year. No, I don't think so. Well, particularly with Mayo, uh, I feel when you look at the games that they had played, the four previous games in the Championship, they hadn't really learned a whole lot. And I, I think even Mayo people are bristling at this a small bit in that they were very, very good in those four games. That's why they won by such a huge margin. So, you know, they learned that they were very, very, a very, very good team over the course of those four games. But Tyrone did back them into a corner in their All-Ireland semi-final, uh, asked them a couple of pretty tough questions, put them in a pretty tight spot, really, if we're being honest, for uh, 25 minutes of the, of the game. And uh, Mayo managed to come out the, 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 the right side of it. Maliki Clerken has just popped into the studio. Maliki, I'll put the same question to you. The way those games panned out, would you be able to say that both Dublin and Mayo would have actually learned a lot from their semis? Yeah, I guess so. I guess... <laughs> Uh, I, I think in the uh, 15 minutes immediately after the full, full-time full whistle of the uh, Mayo semi-final, I think if Andy Moran said semi-finals are for the win and once, I think he said it 24 times. Um, I think that... I think everybody realises that Mayo needed a game like that semi-final far more than they would have needed another show of strength like they had in all the games in the run-up to that. They needed to... It was interesting. We were talking to Aidan O'Shea last week um, and his take on the semi-final was, you know, okay, we were start, we were outplayed for the first 10 minutes, but then we had 20 minutes of trying to work out what we were doing here. And after those 20 minutes, we were fine. And, like, that's... That is a, a a great thing to be able to take away. Just those 20 to, minutes, to have, the, yeah. to, to have that in the bank that... We actually worked on something that we couldn't have generated yeah, in training. Yeah, and, anywhere and we did it. James Horan didn't do it. James Nallen didn't do it. Uh, the backroom staff didn't do it. The 15 guys on the pitch worked it out for themselves. 
and came through the toughest time that they've had since last year's All-Ireland Final. Mike Finnerty, sports editor of the Mayo News, is with us as well. Mike, the confidence in Mayo certainly seems that the players, I read the piece that Maliki wrote with Aidan O'Shea, they're certainly not afraid to talk about the belief they have in themselves this year. Has that semi-final, do you think, added to that belief, the fact that they managed to work out a way to get past Tyrone? Yeah, well, I think very much so. I suppose the story of Mayo summer up to that point had been very straightforward. Um, they had come through Connacht with uh, with great comfort. The, the Donegal match, I don't think any of us expected that game to pan out the way it did, you know, over at half time. And coming into the Tyrone game, there was certainly a sense that Mayo hadn't been tested. And, and that was the, the big concern. How would we cope when we were put in, in a situation where we were out of our, our comfort zone? And certainly there were a lot of people very worried after maybe 20, 25 minutes when Mayo had fallen behind by by four or five points and then Killian O'Connor, of course, going off as well. But I think the way they responded to that adversity certainly galvanised them and galvanised the, the supporters as well. And of course, they kicked on then in the second half and, and really closed the game out fairly impressively. But there's been a kind of a constant team running through the group and running through the message over the last three years under James Horan anyway. And it's all about that we work on the training ground on, on the specifics and on the basics. Everything is measured and assessed constantly and regularly. And then they go out and put it into to match situations. And it, it's, I suppose, in the early stages, that sounded like a, like a cliche or sounded like a, a pre-prepared script. But to be honest, the, the results back it up. I mean, it was only going through the, some of the statistics last week when we were putting together our own All-Ireland Final Supplement. Like, Mayo have won 13 of the 15 championship matches they've played under James Horan. So there is, there is a method to what they're doing and, and the results are speaking for themselves. And certainly, I think dealing with the Tyrone problem in the semi-final uh, means that they feel they're, they're in good stead heading into this final. But of course... The big question is, can they put in that performance on Sunday that they need? I think everything else is in place now. Yeah. It's just a matter of performing. Are they likely to... We talk about learning from that Tyrone game, and certainly it's given them belief. Are they likely to alter their game plan at all? Is there any need to do that against Dublin? Did anything happen against Tyrone, do you think, that would have made James Horn and his selectors think, we have to do things a little bit differently to how we've done them so far? Yeah, that, that, that's that's a fascinating question, and that's something that I did ask James about um, last week when we spoke uh, ahead of the final. And you know, he he gave that familiar uh, smirk of his, and he kind of rolled his head from side to side and said, "We'll see, we'll see." And he certainly used the word "tweak things a little bit" to to, to deal with what Dublin are bringing to the table. But I think the, the, the big questions down here that, that are being asked again and again over the last few weeks is what will we do in the first 10 or 15 minutes to make sure we're still in the match at that stage? Because that has been the story of, of the 4 6 and last year's final. Again, we, we've started poorly uh, in, in all those cases. The game has been beyond us. We have never been able to get back on terms and, and we've ultimately lost the matches. So will James decide to play with a sweeper in the early stages and, and try and keep things tight? Will he go man-to-man and try and, and, and blitz Dublin in the way they're probably going to try to blitz us? But certainly... I think Mayo are going to line up a little bit differently uh, to the way they did against Tyrone just by nature of the fact that Dublin play a completely different game. It's it's swashbuckling, it's all out attack. They're going to try and, you know, hit Mayo from all angles early on and, and certainly going on the on the experience of past finals, I would imagine Mayo will want to stay in this match, be in this match after fifteen, twenty minutes, and then maybe reassess from there. Maliki, did Dublin's victory is the one thing that, that really did just maybe reinforce belief that 
the players have in Jim Gavin's game plan. Gavin has been quite clear all season mm. long that this is the way he wants to yeah. play football and he's not going to compromise. Now, I wonder if they're three points <laughs> ahead with 10 minutes ago, what's going to happen But uh, in the final. But players... I'm sure like to play that way. Even defenders probably like the idea that they're allowed to get forward, but it's not much good if they end up getting a hammering in an All-Ireland semi-final. The fact they came through the Kerry test, you think that will give everybody in the squad belief that this is, you can actually win All-Irelands playing like this? Yeah, there there are a couple of sides to that though. And, and I, I'm leaning towards Mayo for the match for a couple of reasons. And one of them is that Dublin haven't come across a team so far this summer that has defended against them, that has set up against them. I mean, in, in one in one way, it would have been great to see Dublin try and get past Tyrone in the semi-final uh, and playing the way that they want to play. They haven't come up against every team that they've come up against. You know, from Kildare to Meath to Cork to Kerry, have attacked against them, have played with six defenders. They haven't had to to break down a defence so far. And so it's great, you know, it's great that Jim Gavin is is full of, you know, this philosophy that we want to play and we want to be true to the traditions of Dublin football and blah, blah, blah. That's okay when the other team is set up six against six. No team has set up to defend against them. And that's that's the one question that, fair enough, they came through an epic semi-final and they had to figure it out on the pitch as well. They had to do an awful lot. They had to come through a lot of adversity there. But they still came through against a team that was there for them to play against. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And and it it will be fascinating to see what what different question Mayo put up against them. Because when you think about it, the last time Dublin had to play a team that was playing defensive against them or that defended in in, a, in an organised, really structured way was Tyrone in the league, the league final. final. Yeah, and they only just bottom, got over yeah. it. Only just. I, th- I think that that's, that's a very relevant game to be talking about in the context of, of the All-Ireland Final. Because, as you say, Tyrone actually didn't play all that well yeah. that day. No. You know, and they still got very, very good. Uh, weren't yeah. they level with four or five Dean minutes Rock. ago? Dean Rock came off the bench, scored two points. Uh, his 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 only five minutes of the league and scored two points and yeah. got himself into the And it kind of seemed like, like Dublin were flummoxed, you know, that they there, were was, there was bit, an element but, of panic even there, in that game. But there is a difference between that Tyrone team and this Mayo team. Like, I, 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 I get what Mike is saying there, that the... The, the sort of the fear within the county of those first 10, 15 minutes. I'm not sure that that fear exists within the squad. And I, I do think that however it begins, Mayo will be there with 10 minutes to go. I can't see, I can't see this game being over before the last 10 minutes. And the prospect of those last 10 minutes then <laughs> is pretty exciting. But uh, Mike, the, the fact that Mayo people seem to be quite bullish, uh, or were very bullish, I think, after the, the Dublin-Kerry semi-final that they were kind of, well, you know, I think we can, we can actually handle either of these teams, even though it was, you know, one of the great Gaelic football games of all time. Was that kind of surprising to you? Well, I suppose, Murph, it's like, it's like most counties that have waited an awfully long time to, to make a breakthrough. You know, every year there's a sense that this will be our year, particularly when we, we keep getting to semi-finals and finals. And you're always going to meet a constituency of Mayo supporters who are bullish in, in January and, and are talking about <laughs> the homecoming, you know, at an FPD league match in Ballyhonas on, on, on New Year's Day. Yeah. But I think that the vast majority of, of Mayo supporters would feel at this point that the, the, the statistics stack up in terms of Mayo bringing um, a performance and, and being able to, to deliver uh, in Crow Park. I mean, I think this is the 13th time Mayo have played at Crow Park under under James Horan's watch. Uh, the performances up to now would suggest that that, that this is the, the best prepared uh, Mayo team that have gone to an All-Ireland final um, 
probably since 51. Um, and I think there's probably an expectation there, like Maliki said, that Mayo are going to perform, um, they're going to be competitive and that they are going to be in this game with 10 minutes to go. And I think if that is the case, most Mayo people will feel will be very hard beaten um, because of the work that Ed Coughlin and Donny Buckley have done on the training ground. Um, but I suppose the mood down here at the moment is, so, is somewhere between uh, quiet confidence and expectation. No, nobody's losing the run of themselves, though. I think when you lose seven or eight finals over the course of you know, the last 25 years or so, you, um, you, you start to... to uh, to, to tweak your own expectations and you just you start to be a bit more realistic about things but certainly Mayo people are expecting that um, we're going to go very close if not if not, if not not win this thing Can you let us in on the rumblings around team selection and particularly fitness issues? Yeah we, we, were, we were working quite extensively uh, yesterday to, to find out exactly what the, what the lie of the land was Mayo were away at the weekend for a, a training camp and, and they played their, their last A versus B match on Sunday and my information is and Anybody who buys the Mayo News this morning will be able to read it there yeah. is that um, Killian O'Connor did play a part in that A versus B match and, and came through unscathed and didn't um, suffer any ill effects of the shoulder problem. And that would mean, um, as far as I'm aware, that he's still very much in contention to uh, to start. But whether or not he will remains remains uh, in, in some doubt. Um, I think there's a feeling that Mayo are going to let this run up till the very last minute before they make a decision on it uh, because while Killian came through that A versus B match on Sunday um, his shoulder is, is still three it's a little over three weeks since he dis- dislocated it you know and there's still a, a worry there and an issue there but if they decide to go with Killian then I would imagine it'll be an unchanged team from the Tyrone match there, there was some speculation down here that Andy Moran uh, may be under some pressure to, to hold his place but to be honest, I can't see Mayo going out Sunday without Andy leading them out. Um, he, he's been playing well in training by all accounts. He had a hamstring problem coming into the Tyrone match as well that only came to light really uh, subsequent to that. Uh, he's fully fit now. Everybody else is fully fit. The only other um, change that you may see on, on the bench, Kenneth O'Malley came through that A versus B match as well um, on Sunday. He's been out for about two months with an ankle injury and now it looks like he may well get the, the substitute goalkeeper's jersey uh, for, for Sunday but again that's going to be a very close call but Killian O'Connor is the big one and I, I would think James Horn and Killian O'Connor are going to sit down at some stage very close to Sunday and have a have a very frank conversation and make a call on it Killian O'Connor is the big one Maliki but the mention of Andy Moore in there could he beat the wild card in a way because Mayo haven't had Andy Moore firing on all cylinders if he can pick up that form and he has the talent and he's shown the ability to do it on the big stage before could he be the guy who actually lands this but I'm not putting any pressure no. on Andy Moore if he's listening what is it they, 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 they use the, old, the soccer term like he could, he could be like a new signing yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know because Andy and, and much as uh, you, you wouldn't meet a more gentlemanly footballer uh, in this job um, Andy hasn't been playing well this year and you know it's it's hard to to look at him and not think that it's down to um you know not being fully recovered from from the cruciate and Mike says there that he had hamstring during the Tyrone game the Tyrone game he just looked like a guy who wasn't going to the ball and it it, it was interesting to see uh, Mikey Conway come on and you know uh, had a couple of 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 pot shots and runs but what the biggest difference was that he was going to the ball and he was getting in possession. And that was when Andy won his All-Star in 2011. 
you know, that was Andy's big thing. You know, he got out in front, he got on the ball, um, you know, he terrorised Marco Shea one of the days. So he, um, if if he's back and firing, you know, all this talk about Mayo not having forwards will be uh, go out the window. All right, listen, Malky, great stuff. You're tipping up Mayo. Mike, I don't need to ask who you're tipping up, but listen, enjoy the rest of the week and thanks very much for joining us today. No problem, all. thanks a lot. Really good of Mike to spare some time. It's a busy week for him. Murph, I know he's got the... The big supplement out now. Yeah. But uh, he did mention to Simon off air that he's he's still going strong, still a lot of work to do. Yeah, I believe was... uh, just any male listeners uh, tuning in, I believe Mike Finnerty does have a large number of uh, All-Ireland final tickets. So if you want to just get in touch <laughs> with him, uh, just knock on his door. Really, he's probably the best, you know. Yeah. Mayo, you can go straight to Mayo News either. Yeah, or just queue up in a form and orderly queue at his <laughs> desk. And uh, he'll sort you out. Oh, he's got, he's got a bag load of them. One of the most interesting parts of the George Best story, Ken, certainly in the way it's presented in this new book, is how unprepared Matt Busby and Man United seemed to be. This phenomenon hadn't happened before. So through no fault of their own, really, they had no idea how to deal with it, which leads to the question whether or not there was anything else that could have been done for George Best, if Best could have been saved from alcoholism. I mean, they tried what they could try. Uh, I mean, I suppose at the time... Uh, a lot of you know people would tend to see alcoholism as a moral failing rather than the way people tend to look at it now is that it's a, a disease, and that wasn't really the way that people looked at it then. So my Busby would talk to him, you know, again he, he talked to him nearly every week, you know, sort of George, you got to pull yourself together, and Best, who who was an incorrigible liar uh, on the subject of drink and his intentions and so on, would would always reassure him that everything was going to be fine. Uh, and it became increasingly clear. I mean, there's one story in this book about being brought to a, a, a PFA disciplinary hearing. And, of course, these were quite big. This is a big deal at the time. I mean, I think Duncan Hamilton writes in the book, uh, you know, three, he got three yellow cards in a 12-month in a period, which is not really that big a deal now, but at the time was like a public flogging offence. Mm. Uh, and turns up uh, late to the thing because he's drunk, misses his train down, eventually gets to Lancaster Gate, pukes in the lift, you know, with Matt Busby. And sort of comes in, so you could see this. This is a guy with serious, you know. Busby began to realize this is there's something seriously, seriously wrong here that I don't really understand. She tried to send him to to a psychiatrist and everything, but you know, best description of the psychiatrist was you know one of these guys and you know sort of a stern older man with uh, with a big pair of glasses who would sort of peer at him and then ask him questions about his his life and write down the answers on a little notepad until Best eventually just started laughing at him and, and walked out. You know, I mean, it was um, whatever way it was going to be, whatever way there was to, to save George Best, they didn't really understand how to do it at the time. Duncan Hamilton has written a new book, Immortally Approved Biography of George Best. Duncan, I know you've worked with George's sister on this one. There has been so much written, a lot of fact, a lot of myth about George Best before and immediately after his death. Which begs the question: Did you believe you could bring something new to this story? Yes, I think. I, I think. Um, I mean, I I kind of read every book that George George sort of wrote, and I've read and I read every book that other people have written on him, and I really wanted to find out the reasons why why he turned out the way that he did, why the 1960s were such a a, a kind of um, decade when kind of fame and the kind of nature of fame changed and and why he just couldn't handle the kind of pressures that all of that brought and i particularly wanted to try and 
explain and try and make a career connection in terms of the events of George's life and just really to make um, sense of them. I think I, I think that I thought there were gaps there that really needed to be to uh, be filled, and there were certain people who who were pivotal in George's life, rather like the scout Bob uh, Bob Bishop and his landlady Mary Fullaway and his agent called Ken Stanley, who had never really been ex- explored as people before. And so I really wanted to try and bring something new to it. There was a line in the middle of the book, Duncan, that, that almost brought me up short when I read it. It begins one of the paragraphs, and it reads, The misconception about George Best is that alcohol alone wrecked him in his career. It ignores the reason why he drank. The football was the problem. Yes. Yes, it was totally the football. I mean, I think that... Um, I think what uh, people have to remember is that from 1963 to 1968, George had nothing but success and fame. And within that period, he was winning medals. Manchester United were the top club in the country, really. They were still certainly the most glamorous of clubs. And he felt in 68, um, as um, as he kind of looked back on the European Cup final, that that would be the first of many European Cup finals. He thought that United would be rather like Real had there uh, had uh, been, and they would kind of dominate that uh, competition. He kind of also felt that uh, Busby would go out and he would buy, and he would buy three or four really good players, and he would mould the side round him. He would get rid of the older players, and everything would be fine. And George was a perf- perfectionist. There's no doubt about that, to a kind of obsessive degree. I mean, he kind of always said that if he was playing well, he he uh, he didn't want to come off the pitch. And if he was playing badly, then he kind of also didn't want to come off the pitch because he kind of wanted to make sure that he made some kind of con- contribution. Um, and so he found himself in, say, 1969 to, 70 to 71, having to be um, in, well, basically second best. And he didn't kind of like that. And that's what, that's what kind of really caused him to um, um, accelerate his uh, um, drinking. Um, had the football been going well, I think we'd have seen a completely different George uh, Best during the kind of early part of the 70s and for the rest of his life, probably. I mean, he used to have these grandiose fantasies. This was something I, I didn't, I never realised about Best. But before he took the field, he used to sort of have these these notions of what he might do out there. I mean, I think there was one where he sort of saw himself uh, backflipping and, and sort of knocking the ball into the, the net with his heels. You know, there was, um, before the, the 1968 European Cup final, he had a very clear idea of the kind of game he wanted to have. And so that eventually when he scored the winner, with a shot that I suppose by his standards, you know, he'd be two players and sort of scuffed it into the net. And that was the winning goal in the, in the European Cup final. And he couldn't take any pleasure in it. Yes, I know. I mean, I think that shows basically how how kind of much of a perfectionist he was. But does I mean, it show, said, Duncan, do you think that it shows that he was a perfectionist or that he was sort of depressive or anhedonic? I mean, mostly people don't need to score the perfect goal in the, in the 1968 European, in, in the European Cup final to, to feel happy about it. No, I mean, I think for George, everything, everything had to be perfect as uh, far as his uh, football was concerned because he felt as if he'd let himself down and he would feel as if he'd let other people down and I watched that 68 European Cup final and in the first 15 minutes I mean he gets whacked about or at least seven or eight times Ser- um, I mean seriously 
ever hurt. And um, and he just kind of gets up and he can uh, and he complains to the referee and he does all the other things that you would kind of do in in uh, those circumstances. And and they just keep on kicking him. And so by the end of the 90th minute, he's kind of decided as they're sitting there for extra time that you know as soon as he gets the ball, as soon as he gets one one chance, he's going to take it, which of course he kind of does. But when you think of all the celebrations afterwards, and yet he is sitting in that dressing room thinking to himself that he hasn't really done himself justice because because he hasn't scored three year three year goals, and that is a kind of perfectionist thing, which 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 kind of then led on, and I mean you you kind of mentioned the word the depression there, and and. Later on, that's, uh, that's exactly what he suffered. Duncan, I remember reading um, the section of The Football Man by Arthur Hopcraft, a great book of the late 1960s on George Best, and it was a really lovely portrait, but this was around that kind of period. So we're talking probably 67, maybe this had been written. Uh, a few years previously, Hopcraft had interviewed Best in the really early days when Best was incredibly shy. I don't know, maybe he always remained shy, but it was before the adulation, it was before he'd become really famous. And he was just contrasting the two George Best without being patronising about it. I mean, he was saying this guy, is, he wasn't painting him out to be a bad guy or anything, but his life it was impossible for it not to change. Did Best himself change over those years, the nature of the man? Yeah, well, I think he was, I mean, he uh, was um, pitifully shy when he first came to Manchester and he was still really pitifully shy by about 64, 65. And, um, that's what's, I mean, he, he basically to go into a room was very difficult for him. And that's when he started to actually drink because, um, that would at least enable him to get some confidence. Um, I don't think he changed basically as a person very much until the effects of the alcohol took hold. I think he was essentially the same sort of person, but it, it, it was uh, just that the kind of George Best that um, everybody knew became kind of warped under the um, under the influence of alcohol. Can you give us an idea, Duncan, of how wealthy? I mean, we can we can kind of imagine how famous he was. Uh, maybe the sort of celebrity universe then wasn't as thickly populated as it is now, and he certainly would have been, you know, the one of the brightest stars in England at that time. But how rich was he? Because you know, looking back on his on his life, you can see certain incredible uh, trappings of success in the 1960s. Now, the sums when you read about them in the book don't obviously don't sound like a lot. You know, uh, he paid thirty six thousand pounds for this um, mansion, Caesarea, uh, that he lived in, a, an, an incredible modernist building, which I think everybody, apart from the the, the extremely highbrow used to laugh at. Uh, you kind of talk in the book about how a lot of the endorsement deals he had seem sort of, you know, by, by a modern footballer's point of view, they're, they're sort of menial, I think is the word you use. You know, he's advertising sausages and, you know, posing for catalogue stores, uh, this kind of thing. How much money was he really making, though? Yeah, I spoke to his uh, um, agent's son, who actually worked for the agency, and he spent most of his uh, time between 1966 and 1970, uh, uh, 1971 with uh, George, and um, he told me that around 68, 69, he was earning £100,000 a year, a year, um, and that was an awful lot of money, and that was equivalent to about £1.2 And But, of course, tax was, tax was much higher. Um, George had a habit of giving money to uh, people because he was very, very generous. He also had a habit of... Um, of um, 
um, in their uh, vesting in things that he shouldn't have been there, uh, vested in. And so it got to a point where he was fed up of paying so much tax uh, that, that, uh, that he uh, always wanted to be paid in cash. And it wasn't unusual when he moved into Kesarar to find that there were several thousand pounds stuffed down the side of a chair or the sofa or at Mrs. Fullaway's, um, um, her son Steve once went into the sock, sock drawer and found uh, um, £30,000 in their uh, cash. Um, I mean, you know, that, 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 is, uh, that is the way that he kind of lived, lived then. Um, but money didn't really mean anything to him. I think he always thought that he would earn money, and um, he, he, it kind of wasn't the fact that he was kind of buying loads of, loads of things um, other than sports cars, which he would kind of change reg, um, regularly, really. Yeah. Um, but he, he kind of wasn't a, a sort of great one for possessions. Um, so there were his clothes and his sports cars, and that was it, really. And maybe the idea had already begun to take root in him that he wasn't going to be around for that long, so it wasn't as though he needed to put money aside. But, I mean, you when you're talking about this sort of period in his life when he was, when he was acquiring all this stuff, and it's, it was... Um, I don't know if it was deliberately attention-seeking. I mean, you, you say that he never really recognized his own complicity in what happened. And, you know, if you're driving around Manchester in a white Rolls Royce, people are going to take notice of that and maybe take an interest, and, and the interest became oppressive to him. But do you think there was any way by which he could actually foresee that? Do you think, since it hadn't really happened to anybody else, um, or maybe it was happening to Mick Jagger at around the same time, but there hadn't been too many examples of this happening, that he honestly th- thought that he could maybe, he could have a white Rolls Royce, and then he could go home at the end of the day, and, and people would just leave him alone. Yes, I think he, I, I think he did think that. I think that he thought also that, that um, you know, life would just carry on from the way it had been in, say, 1966. Because 66 was the kind of first, first kind of real uh, year of his of his fame and um and while he was obviously famous he could then go into pubs and kind of bars and you know you know by and by and large wasn't wasn't kind of pestered but by 67 68 things had things had become to, to turn a little bit nasty he was getting a lot of poison poison pen letters and things like that um and he did have this daft sort of Thing that he uh, that he thought he could buy these cars and no one would kind of notice them. I mean, it is remarkable that until he moved into um, the uh, um, the the kind of modern modern house which he had built, that he was still uh, living in a terraced house um, in their uh, Chalton Chalton Um But it suited the kind of lifestyle that he uh, that he kind of wanted to have then. Duncan, I guess we're talking about the 1960s. Maybe the uh, addiction that alcoholism is wasn't understood as deeply as it is now. But that said, it would have been, I guess, quite obvious that the his career was starting to be affected. He wasn't hitting the heights that he had been hitting. Manchester United certainly weren't hitting the heights that they had been hitting. As as that progressed, as alcohol became a bigger feature of his life, what? how did his manager, Matt Busby, try to combat that, do you know? Well, to be honest with you, I think that um, Matt Busby made a mistake because he confused teenagers of the 1950s with teenagers of the 1960s. And I, I found a little tale where he'd rebuked Bobby Charlton for having a, a beer in about 1955, 
1956. And, and he said that um, once he just told Charlton once, then that was it. He just kind of made sure that he kept himself on the straight and narrow. In 1965, he actually dropped George. I think George missed about three games very early on in the season because he was burning the candle at both ends and in the uh, middle two, I think. And he felt then, Busby, that once he'd kind of done it, then 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 uh, suddenly George would George would fall into line. And of course, that kind of didn't uh, that uh, that kind of didn't sort of happen. And I think that Busby, rather like everybody else who was born around the same time and who had been raised during the Great War, found the 1960s very confusing. I mean, it was a completely different culture, completely different attitude, and you know, George wasn't. Bobby Charlton, and he wasn't, and he wasn't Duncan Edwards, and yet Busby made the mistake of uh, thinking that he kind of was. I mean, I wouldn't blame him too, uh, too uh, much because, because he, uh, because he certainly wasn't the only one. I think Manchester United, as a kind of whole, didn't didn't really uh, appreciate what was happening to George, didn't uh, didn't sufficiently um, ration the sort of things that he was actually doing, um, and and you know, by the time they did finally tie tried to get a firmer grip on it, which was about 1970. I mean, it was just, I mean, it, it had just reached the point of nowhere in return then. Yeah, and it certainly seems as though uh, you, you can't hammer Matt Busby on this. He was he tried his best. It wasn't as though he ignored it. He, he did talk to George Betts. He did try to put him on the straight and narrow. Maybe, as you're saying, he thought that's as simple as it was. I talked to these young lads and they listened to me. But not only had the world changed between the 50s and the 60s, since that story you tell about Bobby Charlton, the course of Munich air disaster had struck Manchester United. Did that alter... Busby's thinking. I have heard it said that he was he treated his footballers a little bit differently. The, the, the joy that the amount of youth that was snuffed out at Munich maybe made Matt Busby see young people a little bit differently. That he w- he was maybe a bit a bit loath to try to rein them in too much because of what he had seen lost in Munich. Yes, I, I I certainly think so. I think that Munich changed his kind of outlook so profoundly. I think um, I think he was a less kind of ruthless manager um, after after Munich than he had been before that, and I mean in a kind of discipline sense, um, because uh, and I suppose that it is kind of natural, really. I mean, I don't think anybody could have come through that without being mentally scarred for life, really. Um, and I think that he was. I mean, he wanted to be per eternal and kind of fatherly towards George and essentially because he I think he was I think he saw that George was the kind of player that Duncan Edwards might have there been had he actually lived and um, he wanted him to in a joy life too um, but what he needed really was the was uh, some really firm kind of discipline which he just didn't get in this book, uh, Duncan, you, you talk about how Best saw Johan Cruyff as his only serious rival um, in, in the, the, during the time that he's playing. This is the only guy, really, who's, who's got a talent to match mine. I remember reading something Cruyff said about Best. Uh, he said, George Best showed that you can't do this without having a wife. You need somebody to love. Essentially, to um, keep you off the streets is what is what Cruyff seemed to be driving at there. And, and clearly... Um, uh, Best was involved with a lot of women. There's a lot of detail about this here, and this was one of the one of the reasons why maybe he didn't get to bed as early as a footballer 
usually should. Uh, and when you read through some of these episodes, they're honestly ridiculous. I mean, um, you know, you think of the worst excesses of, of celebrities that you would read about today, and Bess was doing all this in the in the 60s. The, I was particularly struck by this story about Ava, uh, what was her name? Ava Halbisch, that the, the Danish uh, girl, who essentially wrote off to a Danish newspaper and, you know, said, I met someone at a match, um, does anybody there have any idea who it might have been? And she sent her photograph and she came over and they had a, a kind of a doomed romance. But later he said, uh, I fell in love with a pair of knockers. Um, do you think that was best just using the language of the 60s and 70s uh, to talk about women? Or was there a kind of a misogyny there which prevented him from ever really empathizing with a woman or, or developing a, a stable relationship with one? No, I think it was the unfortunate un language of that uh, particular time. Um, I think that um, I think that George was just in, uh, he just found it impossible to kind of settle down with one uh, woman. I mean, he'd uh, proposed to somebody be before then, uh, Jackie Glass, who I spoke to, um, and and she said to me that even though you know um, George had asked her to. Um, Maria, she kind of knew that they were far too young. She was living in London. He was based in Manchester. It was never going to work. Um, and you know, Matt uh, Busby kept on sort of asking, asking George to kind of settle her down. You know that he uh, that he wanted him to have one the good woman. George um, unfortunately wanted kind of several good uh, good uh, women, um, and he was just so good looking then. Obviously, getting a girlfriend wasn't uh, difficult. I mean, yeah, you talk about how he was essentially the, the sort of perfect fusion of a person with the age. You know, I mean, he kind of seemed to embody the spirit of, of the time. And he was surrounded by dangers which people then maybe didn't understand and people couldn't really foresee because this was a new thing that had happened. Do you think that he could have been saved? Was there anything that could have been done for him? They tried sending him to a psychiatrist. That didn't work. I mean, was there anything more that could have been done? Or was this going to happen to George Best, given the person that he, he became in the late 60s? I think at that uh, particular time, everybody did what they could. I think it would be handled so much so much differently. I mean, it would be handled so, so much differently now than... That, uh, then I think that George would be the sort of player who could have carried on playing well into his his thirties. Uh, but it was very difficult in the nineteen sixties and seventies because it caught everybody by surprise, and um, there wasn't anything I think any anybody could have kind of done had uh, George settled settled uh, uh, down. Had he been kind of willing to listen to the advice that his friends or his agent or even Matt Busby gave him, then then it might have been different. Had his parents come over from Ireland, would it have been different? I'm, I'm kind of not convinced it would have been. Um, I think it was just, it was just the time and the age and and the kind of period that he was in, um, and it just was unfortunate. There was the perfect storm of, of of kind of George's obsessions and his perfectionism at a time when Manchester United needed to re, re, rebuild their side and they just couldn't do it. Okay, the book is called Immortal, George, George Best Immortal, I should say. Duncan Hamilton, thanks so much for talking to us on the show. Thanks so much, boys. The idea that football was the problem for George Best is really interesting to me because, I don't know, it seems, that, I guess fame was the problem in a lot of ways and football brought him fame, so maybe you could argue. I always thought it was a question 
that surrounded Paul McGrath as well. I can never quite work out if... I, th- I think he gen- generally saw football as a huge beacon of positivity in his life, and there's no doubt that it was. But football also brought him fame, and that was something that he wasn't necessarily able to deal with especially well. It's uh, just an interesting concept in in the best story that football was the issue. Well, with best, I mean, it, there was there was a lethal kind of confluence of, of factors, you know, his own personality, the unique circumstances of his fame, um, the fact that he was incredibly good looking. You know, I mean, it was it was just it drew people to him. I mean, this is literally true. Um, you know, he, when when he was playing football, he wasn't happy because he was only happy if he scored six goals. And literally, he had to score six goals or he had to score a goal that no one had ever seen in order to feel like he'd done something that was worth his while. So even that couldn't really give him any satisfaction. Then you had the fact the team was falling apart. Um, the, the the players around him were no longer as good as they had been. The management of the, you know, he, he, you know, coinciding with his own personal sort of depression, he became really fatalistic about the prospects of, of Manchester United. Eventually he, he walked out, you know, it was impossible for him. You, you know, this, you should check out if, if you're on YouTube, the, this is your life with George Best. And, you know, Eamon Andrews gets him at this fashion show. Your best is so, you know, I can't believe it. And comes out and Matt Busby comes out and, you know, they're all there. Frank O'Farrell, who's then the manager of Manchester United, is sitting in the audience. Various figures from Best's life, they all come out, you know. And Best said after it, a long time after it, that should have been called This Was Your Life. Because literally at the moment when this show was filmed, I mean, he's weeks away from, from quitting the whole thing. He's just sitting there with this almost really embarrassed sort of look in his face. Nobody really knows what's about to happen, but I think he already knows that this is all already over. Coming up at six o'clock tonight. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What have you wanted? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. Second captain's football, okay? Yeah, we're going to talk to Alan Stubbs, who's got a new book. This is former Alan Stubbs, formerly of Celtic, of Everton, of Sunderland, Derby, a couple of other clubs, um, and who notably recovered twice from cancer uh, to resume his playing career. Um, has brought a book out and there's some interesting stuff and there are also um, things about some, some current subjects that he, he worked with Martin O'Neill he worked with obviously David Moyes and Wayne Rooney and so on so we'll have a bit of a chat with uh, him about those kind of subjects Richie's also going to be in and we'll talk to him about I think mainly about the, the situation with Ireland yep. and uh, what the FAI really should be should be looking for now and what he thinks is going to happen That's coming up at 6 o'clock I... A few weeks back, I remember watching the World Athletics Championships. I think it was a 5,000 metre final. It was certainly part of Mo Farah's double. I'm almost certain it was the 5,000. And I couldn't believe the tactics of a couple of the runners who were up against them. I thought him. this was a very smart one. What, the point they made? Yeah. No, no, the, the, the tactic. I thought it was really, well, really Well, the tactic smart was, we're not, no, everybody was afraid to really take the initiative because they just thought, well, I'll take the initiative. That might help some other people ultimately beat Mo Farah, mm. but it won't help me beat Mo Farah because I'm going to be screwed and I'm going to be too tired by the end. But one or two of the athletes who were in the lead with a couple of laps to go, they knew Mo Farah would beat them over the last couple of laps. So what they did was they stood in his way. They yeah. literally just said, we'll get in his way and hopefully he won't get by us Kind here. of like a moving chicane. The issue there, Murph, is that the Olympic or any athletics track is reasonably wide. So mm. if you're willing to go a slightly longer route as Mo Farah was, you will get around that person. Mm. 
I thought that that tactic was a little bit ridiculous. But I watched the Great North run at the weekend. Lo and behold, Kananisa Bekele, one of the great athletes of all time, was in a similar situation, albeit he was a good bit further ahead of Mo Farah than anyone was during that 5,000 metres. Mo Farah suddenly, the cadence changes, everything changes. He's suddenly bearing down with a few hundred metres to go on a tiring Kananisa Bekele. And you're thinking, there's no way, there's no way he can hold him off here. But at this point, the last few hundred metres, there are kind of barricades. It gets very narrow. There are barricades. I don't know why they did this, but there was, certainly was very little room in which to manoeuvre. And Bekele, looking around his right shoulder, sees Farah there, moves to his right. Looks around the left, sees Farah there. Maybe if Farah was a little more intelligent in his running, he would have double mm. bluffed him and somehow got around. But Bekele, last few hundred metres, held him off with this exact tactic. It was incredible. Yeah, Brian O'Driscoll probably would have got past Bekele there had he yeah, been starting from a lot closer to that finish line. Well, not that much closer. But, you know, I mean... Uh, don't doubt don't, don't Drickle like that, Ken. <laughs> You reckon, you reckon O'Driscoll over uh, a half marathon? Well, David Epstein was telling us a couple of weeks ago, fat ankles means you'll never win. You'll never be a good you know, middle distance or long distance runner. So, Drickle, sorry. Those <laughs> fat ankles are probably going to count against you. This is myself from Kieran's yeah. comments here. Um, yeah, I, it's a difficult one because uh, you sort of do need to have eyes in the back of your head to be confident of pulling off that particular trick. But I suppose Bikelli is a better door than he is a window. Aileen Reid had high hopes going into the Olympics last year. The Irish triathlete crashed on her bike, though, struggled on, had a, a bit of a nightmare, got to the finish, but um, was really nowhere in the field. She's since moved to Australia, has been part of an elite group there, and the sacrifice and work is paying off. She finished second in London again. Last, uh, This was the last leg of the World Triathlon Series and joins us now. I'm delighted to say, Aileen, brilliant performance on Saturday. Congratulations. An amazing sprint finish at the end to get that second place. You must be thrilled with that position. Yes, um, absolutely ecstatic, you know. Um, I think in the big, in the beginning I was a wee bit in shock and I didn't really, hadn't taken it all in and just as a couple of days going past here and people sending me messages and saying well done and, you know, it is really starting to sink in now and I'm really chuffed with myself, yeah. I saw um, just short quotes immediately after the race where you, you, you were taking people over during the run and you were kind of glancing around and thinking, I'm up here, I do have a chance and I have to kind of drive it home now. Yeah, I mean, the same thing's happened in the past, you know, uh, I've, when I've had a good race, you know, I'm, think, I'm there thinking, I'm almost doubting myself, you know, I know these girls are really good and I know they can run fast and, you know, I'm up with them, but I was feeling good and I just thought, just keep keep with it, keep pushing it on and, you know, as it got onto the final stages, um, I'm obviously, I, I train with both Emma Moffat and Jodie Stumpson and I know how good they are and when I got into the final stages, I thought, just stay with them until the sprint because I know from training with them that I can beat them in a sprint and I did, so it's great. <laughs> Does that bear out exactly the reason that you decided to up sticks and move to Australia to train with those kind of people? Is it really for moments like that you needed to train with them to bring your own level up but also to give you the confidence to compete against them? That's it. I mean, moving away to Australia and training with a group and a new coach, it was all a big upheaval for me but it's obviously now... Uh, you know, shown that it was very worthwhile and, um, you know, it was far away from home and missed my husband. But um, training with the group and the new coach, he's uh, really helped me with a lot of things along the way. And um, we've really evened out the road now. There, there's much less ups and downs, but um, I had a really steady, even year. And um, 
to, to finish it off with the silver medal at the World Champs is um, just icing on the cake. Yeah, no, it's brilliant, Aileen. And I remember speaking to you before and uh, the, you weren't married long and you were heading off to Australia, as you were saying, having to leave your husband behind there. How have you found that process? Um, yeah, I mean, what what can I say? Um, he told me there just before I arrived in London that I've been away from home for nine months and seven days this year. So um, being married just around 11 months, it, it's it's one way to keep a marriage alive. <laughs> but um, no, uh, he's been very supportive of me and obviously talking to him on Skype and, uh, you know, he's, he understands high performance sport and it's fantastic to have such a supportive uh, husband and family. Um, and the whole family was here to watch me, so it was it was amazing for them to finally watch one where I did well in. You had a difficult Olympic Games. I guess that's one that you that they would have watched that you didn't do well in. Um, yes. Unfortunately, but, but to come back and do this in London, did it did it banish memories? Do you think like that? Or do you do you have to just get over those negative experiences straight away, or were you going in thinking, well, you know, I can really put that to bed now by doing well here? Yes. Um, you know, I've had two crashes in this course in London and another, you know, mediocre performance. So I really think this course owed me one. <sighs> and, um, you know, you can you can go in on a real diner and think, you know, well, I'm going to do terrible. This is, you know, this course hates me. Or you can just think, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out there and give it everything and I'm going to show everyone that, you know, I don't fall over at the first sign of wet or, you know, and, and I really did go out there and, um, and I gave it everything I could and, you know, yes, it was a bit scary going around Buckingham Palace and it was wet and it was raining the whole time. But, you know, we, we all took it like a granny um, sitting up with our little baskets on our bicycles because no one wanted to fall and um, crash out of the race. But, yep, made it round. So it's all good. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. You said you, you wanted to show people. Is that how you think? Is it purely about proving things to yourself or do you like to... Do, do you, I suppose a lot of sports people have to feed off perceptions that others have of them is it important that your peers uh, within the sport understand the kind of guts that you have um i think it's a little bit of both i mean you're not on this just to show everyone else what you can do but i want to be the best that i can be you know it's not just about winning medals or you know placing in the top 10 i want to be the best that i can be at, at each stage and um, you're constantly pushing yourself on and yes I do have training partners and you measure yourself often and yes you do you compete against um, the world's greatest you know every every you know month or so over the summer and we've got eight races all together and you're constantly looking around at each other and how everyone else is doing but um, yeah to, to go out there and perform today and on Saturday on the biggest stage and um, to have a lot of my competitors, you know, congratulate me on having such a successful year and a successful finish. You know, it really, really was fantastic. Did you have some, forgetting about the competitors, did you have nice moments with your family after? I did, yes. We went out for a lovely dinner and I was almost more happy for them that they came to see me at a, at a race where I did well. Um, I didn't, wasn't stretched away, which happened two years, three years ago. And... Um, you know, I had, wasn't finishing in 43rd with cuts and bruises. Um, so it was, yeah, definitely happy for my family and really happy to spend the time with them. Absolutely. Well, listen, Aileen, glad it's working out for you. Congratulations again. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks for having me. The image of Aileen and the other competitors cycling around the corner of Buckingham Palace like grannies with the basket on the front of their bikes. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe... I don't know. Maybe the organisers need to make that part of the course a little bit safer somehow so that the cyclists don't have to slow right down. Discretion, the better part of Valeron sometimes, you know. We are in a golden age of Irish triathlon, you know. Go on. Um, Gavin Noble just uh, 
very recently won the uh, Ironman 70.3 Zellam Say. It's the first time that an Irish athlete has won a, an Ironman branded event. Imre Mullen also won the women's event on the same day. Yeah. It's a half Ironman. But yeah, so... Um, they're doing they're doing really well at the moment. It's uh, probably I don't know if it's the fastest growing sport in Ireland, but it can't be far off. That's it from us for the time being. We're back with Second Captain's Football at six o'clock tonight. Don't forget the TV show Second Captain's Live on RTE two tomorrow night. That's Wednesday at eleven p.m. And do follow us on Twitter at Second Captain's, Facebook.com forward slash Second Captain's. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen, and thank you, Carl. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, guys, and thanks very much for listening. Is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.